The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 1, 6 through 14. Uh, It can be found on page 909 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to give you one. Uh, You can pick that up at the info table after the service over in the gallery. Again, Acts 1, 6 through 14. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kylie. Good morning. Hope you're all doing well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park. I'm looking forward to getting into um, this chapter of the Bible together. Uh, This morning we're beginning a new series We're leaving our summer of Christ in the Psalms. We're going to a three-week series that we do every year, um, kind of with different um, angles and different things that we focus on, looking in particular at our mission as a church, who we are, what we're doing, why we're here, uh, why we go about it the way we do. So we're taking three weeks this year. I'm looking at this idea of spiritual renewal. Um, This morning, looking at spiritual renewal, which is just a way of talking about our need for the Holy Spirit to actually awaken us to the realities of the gospel, the realities of who Jesus is, what he's doing in the world, and what our role in it is. And so um, old school words like revival or awakening, that's what we're talking about. Just sounds, you know, less like if you're like, hey, we're going to have revival meetings. You're going to be like, yeah, pass, you know. Um, So spiritual renewal meetings, oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, Suckers, you know. Um, So we're talking about spiritual renewal, uh, which is our need for the Holy Spirit to be moving in us and power, uh, making us aware of his presence and actually sending us out into this world with purpose for his glory. And and next week, we're going to be looking in particular about spiritual vision. What does it mean to have a vision as a church that's not aimed at um, helping people craft a kind of slightly improved, enhanced life in this world, but actually developing our spiritual life with Jesus and our spiritual longing for Jesus and an understanding of what he's doing in the world to build this kingdom um, in this world. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like for us as a church next Sunday. And then uh, the next Sunday after that, we're looking at spiritual practices. So how the sort of like activities of our life and orienting our life around certain spiritual practices can help us cultivate a hunger for Jesus, a love for God, and a love for the world that he's called us into. So that's where we're headed this morning, spiritual renewal. Um, as we dive into it, I want to say this. 
Um, there's a line in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's uh, kind of like awesome story, and uh, where it's winter. It's been winter for a long time, right? This, this kind of like culture is like, it's winter, always winter, never Christmas, uh, which is like the worst thing ever. Um, always winter, never Christmas. And there's this hopelessness, but there's murmurings that are kind of beginning to spread, and it's giving hope. And, and the murmurings are this, Aslan is on the move. Um, Aslan is on the move. Something's happening. Spring is coming. And, uh, and I say that because uh, as I just paying attention to different things God's doing, especially in whether it's our post-Christian cities, more progressive cities in our world, um, Jesus is on the move. There are things happening in churches and communities and in cities like Denver, uh, especially just paying attention to different churches that are existing in different progressive cities around, around the world. Um, God is doing something. And so what we're saying as a people is what does it look like for us to pay attention to what God's doing and to get, engage our own hearts and what he wants to do in our life personally and how that contributes to what he's doing through his people uh, and in these different cities uh, for the sake of his glory in the world. And so we're going to be taking a moment and just praying right now that God would, even in these moments, be stirring in our hearts individually and corporately such that we'd be a people that are prepared and leaning into what he wants to do in us and through us um, in the city and in the world. So let's, let's go to God with some anticipation and hunger for him to work this morning. Um, Jesus, we, we need you. We just prayed. I said, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you every hour. We need you. Um, and that is so, so true. Um, not least in this, in this time together, uh, where we want to hear from you. We want you to speak. We want you to pour out power. Think of Paul um, saying to the Thessalonians um, that our gospel didn't come to you only in word, but it came in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full, deep conviction. And that's what we're praying, God, that the, that the time that we're gathered together, whether we're singing or confessing or having conversations, would be not just full of words and exchanging of information, but it'd be full of power, your power. It'd be full of the presence of your Holy, Holy Spirit, and it would lead to deep conviction, actual life transformation that our inner beings would be stirred up to, to see you, to see your glory, your love, your grace, and it would lead to transformation, transformed lives, households, families, neighborhoods, workplaces, and our city as a whole. We're praying that you do powerful things. So even right now, I just want to pause and pray for all the churches in our city right now. Would you pour out grace as your people worship around the city? Would you stir us up as, as your people in this city and all these different churches with different emphases and strengths and weaknesses and dysfunctions as we're all just kind of fumbling our way through being humans in this city? Would you pour out grace on us? Would you remind us of your love? Would you help us to come before your presence? Would you strip us of the the idols and the snares that trip us up and lead us to complacency. So we pray that you would work in power today. Not just today, but that things that you're doing today would yield transformed desires, reoriented lives, and a community that's on, on fire. For your glory in this city, we pray. Amen. Um, we as Christians have weird words and phrases we use pretty often. So if you're new to Christianity, 
you know, sometimes you'll like be around church people and they're saying things like, you're like, you all think everybody knows what that means, but I have no idea what that means. Like one of those phrases is quiet time. Have you ever heard people use that? Quiet, like where one adult says to another adult, have you had your quiet time recently? And you're like, wait, wait, what? You know, it just feels super condescending. Like we're talking amongst children. Like now you need to have your little quiet time. Like don't disrupt mommy and daddy. Like have, have you had your quiet time? Weird phrases like that. We have all these weird phrases. That, that phrase in particular is about like slowing down and spending time with Jesus, like relational time with Jesus. There are other traditions that for the same basic practice, we have things like morning and evening prayer. Or we have things like daily office or liturgical hours or canonical hours. And you're like, man, that sounds like my tradition or I've never heard those phrases. Well, for me, the tradition of like, what does it look like to slow down and spend time with Jesus? For some people, it's like meditation. For, for my upbringing, it was devotions. Have you ever heard of devotions? Or more cool, devos, you know? Uh, you know, have you been doing your devos lately? Uh, weird stuff. We are weird human beings. Um, I went to a, a college, a little Christian college uh, for undergrad in Wisconsin. And uh, in this Christian college, freshmen had required devos, uh, which just generally speaking, in terms of like human formation, requiring people to do something like that is not super effective um, for whatever that's worth. But um, the idea wasn't like this evil or malicious idea. It's trying to create these practices in the life of freshmen. As you come to college, just putting Jesus at the center in the beginning of your day is such a good practice. And that, that makes sense to me now. Um, at the time, it felt oppressive. It just felt like no way. Um, so uh, me and a group of friends had a plan. And our plan was there'd be this classroom for freshmen. And guys and girls were separate because you couldn't study the Bible next to somebody of the opposite sex. Like who knows what could happen. And so, <laughs> so you're like, you know, guys are in this room and you're sitting down and there's a devotional room monitor, you know, like a sophomore that has power, you know, so excited about their power. And as freshmen, you'd come and you sit down, but you have to walk up to the front of the room and you just have to sign your name in to be like, I was present at Devo's. So there's about seven of us on a rotation. And, uh, you know, you'd go and you'd sign in all seven people. And so you just like walk up and just kind of like do it as fast as you can because it looks weird when you're up there for a long time. You know, the sophomore in the room's like, why is that guy up there? And so, yeah, we are cheating on devotions, like which is not a good idea, just generally speaking, not mature. Um, but I think what I like experienced in that was like my heart clearly, like I, I didn't have in that time, I didn't even have devotion for Jesus. I had devotion for things. I had devotion for a lot of things. I had devotion to the Kansas City Chiefs at that point in my life. Uh, God has, I've, I've since become a Broncos fan. Uh, so God has the power to transform everything. <laughs> Which just want to keep telling Miguel and Sierra about that. Chiefs fans can become Broncos fans. The gospel has power to save. Um, I had devotion for, I had devotion for the Kansas Jayhawks, deep devotion. I would wake up every morning and I would just look at every article that everybody would write and pay attention. I was like, wake up in the morning, spend a time in the word, the ESPN word, you know? Um, and it was powerful and transformative for me. I had devotion to soccer. I had devotion to my grades. I would stay up late at night because I was very committed to my grades. I had devotion to my girlfriend who had become my wife. I had devotion to these different things. And I would give myself to them, not with anybody telling me I had to. I wanted to. I wanted to. I was actually in my heart devoted to these different things. And I bring this idea of devotions up because what I've learned is that we talk about um, kind of what we're doing in this series. One of my prayers is that we would be a people that become 
devoted to prayer. That we would actually be devoted to prayer, not saying prayers, but devoted to this desperate, anticipatory posture before God that we're coming before him day in, day out, pleading with the Lord God to pour out his spirit, to move in us and through us for his glory in the world. That we'd be devoted, but what I cannot do is tell you, hey, everybody, I want you to show up next Sunday morning at 815. We're going to have a sign-in sheet. And, you know, you're going to get extra, like, heaven points or something if you come. I could try that. Uh, Most of you would leave, and you ought to. You ought to. Because coercing you into something that's, like, comes from a place of inside of us and should flow from the heart is ineffective. And yet what we see in Acts chapter 1 is a group of people devoted to prayer. In Acts chapter 1, there's a group of men and women gathered together in a room, men and women in a room. Oh my gosh. Um, Gathered together in a room, desperate for God to move. Desperate. And it was a handful, and there was only a handful in the world. And 2,000 years later, there are men and women gathered in countless rooms today, singing praise to Jesus, saying, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Is risen from the grade, grave, it's finished, right? This incredible reality that we're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is, is risen from the grave. He died on the cross for our sins. He's cleansed us and washed us. And now we're learning to worship him and to love him and to follow him. And that has spread across the face of the earth such that societies and cultures and families and communities and cities have experienced massive change. And it started with a handful of men and women devoted to prayer. And so as we're thinking, what is spiritual renewal? What does it mean to be a people that are actually passionate about what God's doing in the world? I want us to look back at Acts chapter 1 because I think it, it helps us understand what led them to that kind of devotion. And it wasn't a rule. It was a vision for what God was doing in the world in a desperate sense of their need for God's presence and, and his power to accomplish it. A vision for what God's doing in the world and their role in that mission and a desperate sense of their need for his presence and his power. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to um, really look at just two aspects, uh, two different themes we see in this passage. We're not going to look at everything in the passage, just two things um, I want us to see as we think about what does it mean to be the people of God in Denver. Um, And the first one is this. We are, we are desperate for spiritual renewal. Um, you, You actually are. It's actually a mark of humanity. You have inside of you a deep, deep longing for spiritual renewal. Every sense of the not rightness in your heart, every sense of the kind of like the echoes of something better, these longings for something that you're not yet experiencing, these kind of desires that kind of like haunt you and mobilize you and and shape the decisions you have in life, all of those are designed by God as things that reveal our actual need for God's presence and God's power in this world. That we are designed to be people, human beings, who live with God's presence and God's power. We weren't designed to live in this world apart from him. And so all the injustices and all the, the bentness of your own heart, all your inclinations to turn away from Jesus are these like echoes, these symptoms of a deeper desire, a desperate desire for God to move, for God to bring spiritual life, to actually flood our lives and our cities and our families with his presence, and with his power. I want you to look at this in the passage, starting in verse 6. Just some context. Um, Jesus has already, at this point in history, 
He had already come. He had lived this spectacular life of loving and caring and serving other people, of proclaiming God's truth, of being willing to suffer on behalf of others. His willingness to suffer for the good of others and in faithfulness to God's plan led him to the cross where he willingly laid down his life on the cross, dying for the very people who had turned from him and rejected his kingdom. He rose again on the third day, showing not only that the cross was legit, not only that he really was the Son of God, but he has the power to bring life to what is dead. He has the power to bring spiritual life to people that are spiritually dead. He has the power to flood the world with his presence. And then he spent 40 days telling people about his vision for the world, his mission in the world, and the part that we as his people were going to play in that. And he kept telling people, I'm going to go away. I'm not going to stay with you physically, presently, forever. I'm going to go away, but I won't leave you alone. I'm going to actually send you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, my actual invisible spiritual presence to be with you, that I would be with you, I would be in you, and that I would give you power for this mission in the world. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is getting ready to ascend to heaven, where he will sit at the right hand of the Father, And he's promised that he's going to send his Holy Spirit to come in power to give them both his presence and his power for the mission. So look at verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Or restore the kingdom to Israel? What they're saying is, are you going to finally make the world right again? Are you going to take all the wrongs and all the injustices and all the brokenness in our families and in our hearts and in our city and in the world? Are you going to finally make it all right? Are you going to finally establish your kingdom where righteousness and love and grace and peace and rest reign? And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You don't need to know when I'm going to make all things right. Here's what you need to know you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will bear witness to who I am, what I've done, what I'm doing, to my mission in the world. You will bear witness to that in Jerusalem, which is where they were, and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You're going to bear witness to this glory, this kingdom, my reign, my presence, and my power in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And you're not going to do it alone. You're not going to do it by your own devices, your own strategies, your own skills, your own wisdom. You're going to do it by my power and you're going to do it with my presence. Like he had said in the Great Commission, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and I, love, I love where he kind of gives these concentric circles, this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And those are geographic circles where they would begin in Jerusalem, in an upper room, and the Spirit would be poured out on them, and it would lead them to tell people about His grace, reflect His love, reflect His kindness, pursue His justice in Jerusalem. That would then spread out to Judea, and then Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It was geographical. There's also a different different framework, even a way of thinking about life in all of those societies. Jerusalem was a society that was marked by a legalistic understanding of life and righteousness. It was a society marked by, here's how you would get acceptance and love before God— through performance, which led to a society that was marked by pride and shame. Pride for the elite that were getting it done and shame for the people that just felt not good enough. And that cycle of pride and shame was oppressing people. It had enslaved people, and it still does today. 
And society after society, these cycles of performance, like if you can do the right things and look right and be right and be put together, or at least pretend like you're put together, then you're legit and God loves you and you're worthy of love. And if you failed, then you're stained and there's shame and you're hidden and you're in this painful place. And that system is an oppressive system. And what God says is, I'm going to give my people power and my presence to break that system down, to actually bring my love and my loving presence to people that are right now feeling like they, they could never be loved, that they could never be forgiven, they could never be washed, they could never be accepted, they could never be known for what's really going on in their heart, and that his gospel would be filled up and people would have power to spread this good news of the love of God in Christ to religious systems and to break them down. And he talks about Judea, and Judea is a similar society with a similar framework. And then Samaria. And Samaria is uh, another town. The Samaritans were a group of people who were Jewish ethnically to some degree, but had years before, generations before, compromised or assimilated with other cultural idols. And I think it's interesting. He's saying, in this type of setting, people in Samaria need power and they need my presence. And what, what he's saying is that people had a sense of, I know who God is. I love him. I've ordered parts of my life around him. And at the same time, like I've also, for the sake of security and peace and stability, I've also kind of like bought into the pagan systems around me and I've compromised. And that kind of culture is so, so significant for us in American Christianity. That were like, I love Jesus, I want Jesus, I'm happy about Jesus, I'm going to get involved in church, I'm going to do these things, but I also want America's version of the good life, and I'm also going to kind of like pursue the same kind of life that my neighbors and my coworkers and people that have no idea who Jesus is, I'm going to pursue that life, so I like a pretty decent Denver life with some Jesus. More or less the same life as my neighbors and coworkers that don't know Jesus, just sprinkle a little Jesus on there because it makes my soul a little more rested and satiated and it makes me feel a little bit better and I get to meet people and I get to, you know, find, you know, maybe future spouse or network or build some friendships in this new city or whatever it is. So get a little Jesus because it kind of just like adds a little bit of flavor, a little spiritual flavor to your like normal Denver life. And we've assimilated like the Samaritans. We've said, I'll take some of that and some of this kind of like meld it together and this is going to be my life. And it says we need power, the power of God and the presence of God in the people of God to, to break up that system, a system that is ineffective, that leads people to confusion, it leads people to spiritual apathy, spiritual deadness. It eventually leads into just kind of like religious rituals that are dead or a total abandoning of God altogether. That sort of like kind of split life just doesn't sustain the pressures of this world. So you'll push away from Jesus or or maybe just get involved in religious rituals. And then it talks about the ends of the earth, which is where we talk about just a total pagan way of viewing God in the world, which isn't an irreligious way. It's more of a way of crafting our own attempt to get to God through different idols and different values that different societies have erected over time. And it's a really interesting to think about Denver, Colorado, and what that looks like in Denver. Think about what people will call in our society, in a progressive city like Denver, um, really a secular approach to life talk about secularism, there's a, there's a philosopher, put on your hat, thinking hat, philosopher named Charles Taylor, we've referred to him a lot, um, who really talks a lot about what the, what the vision of life is or where we go for life in a secular society. And it's essentially we're trying to find meaning and significance without any sense of relevance of transcendent or eternal realities. 
So there might be transcendent or eternal realities. We might not disbelieve in that. We might not be philosophical atheists like total materialists, but our kind of approach to life is predominantly marked by trying to find life in the material and the temporal, in the here and now and present and the things we can attain and build and accumulate in our own. And this is the secular vision of life. And what I think is really interesting is people are like feeling that, that progress of the secular vision of life that is kind of taking over cities and people are freaking out. They've been freaking out. The church is in decline. The church is in decline. Churches are closing their doors. And they, and they are, right? America is like, you know, losing its values. It's like, okay, you know, like uh, maybe. And it's like this sense of like, everything's falling apart. What's going to happen to the church? Like, let's fortify and yikes, you know, stay apart from society. And, and I, think, I think there's something to that to pay attention to, but I think there's something that's actually really powerful happening. Um, there's a book uh, that just came out recently. It's phenomenal. Uh, Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. If you've heard of it, it's a new book. Mark Sayers is a pastor and kind of a sociologist out of uh, Melbourne, Australia. He's a pastor at a church called Red Church. In this book, he's essentially saying that this kind of like, oh no, secularism's on the rise. The church is getting squashed out. Like, it's just like not something to be afraid of, but actually you can look at with a lot of hopefulness. Because throughout history, these cycles of like societies that are built up apart from God and the church getting kind of like dwindled down and refined and pruned, almost always or throughout history give way to awakenings and movements and renewals as the people of God get back to what Christianity is all about. And what he would say, and other philosophers like Jamie Smith will say, the secular approach to life just isn't working. It's not working for people. So there's this sense of this is growing and this is advancing and, and what's going to happen. The secular train is moving and plowing people down. But the reality is if you pay attention to the sort of emotional fabric of society, like there are all these evidences that this approach to life without God is breaking down. There's more anxiety and depression and isolation and instability than maybe ever before in at least recent modern American history. There are more fractured families. There are more addictions and things that are just plaguing people and plaguing communities and families in ways that are so devastating. The polarization of politics and the climate of our nation itself politically as we get to begin to move into a new political season. It's like everybody's sensing like, what's happening? We thought we were making progress. Like technology promised all this like hope for us, like we can stay connected and yet we have more techno like technological ability to be connected and yet we're more isolated than ever before. The addictions that plague us, whether it's alcoholism or drug abuse or sexual addictions or maybe it's something related to entertainment or the sort of pathological busyness that just plagues us where we can't slow down, we can't stop. We just like wake up and we're active on our phones. We like get watching TV until we numb ourselves to go to bed. And all these things that just kind of like mark our society are just evidences like this whole thing, it's not working which reveals to us our desperate need for God to move. Um, Jamie Smith, uh, who's a theologian and a philosopher out of Calvin College, uh, says this. He says, what if an increasingly aggressive secularism is itself a defense measure? So when you're feeling this sort of like polarizing effect that's happening, what does it mean to be Christians in this city? And you feel like a growing sense of polarity there and, and this kind of even increased antagonism against Christianity. What if... What if it's a defense measure? What if it's kind of last gasp of a worldview that feels frustrated and even threatened? 
What if secularism is loudest precisely because it's a final cry before it's unveiled as implausible and unsustainable? Doesn't the emperor shout loudest about the beauty of his reignment precisely when he least believes it himself? What if secularism has its doubts and is trying to cover it up by pursuing its agenda all the more aggressively, lest they have to consider the alternative? The alternative that there is a transcendent being who reigns over the world. The alternative that there is an eternity. The alternative that we have a soul and what we do with our soul in this world matters. Like what if the sort of like project in its like insecurity and its frailty is getting louder and louder precisely because it's not working. It's beginning to fall apart. Which Mark Sayers in his book, his whole point is this gives us an opportunity not to be afraid of what's happening in society, but to lean in and to begin to kind of purge ourselves from the brokenness that, that's not been working. So you look at the breakdown that's happening in society, but the reality is the same sort of breakdown happens in our lives personally. And as much as we build our life in that same framework, in that same value, we feel the brokenness. And sometimes it's, it's devastating brokenness. And I don't want to minimize it or be light. Sometimes pain, grief, loss, illness, relational things, addiction, just like issues that just kind of like marriages that are struggling, parent-child relationships that are tense, and you just feel like this isn't working. What I think is interesting about Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is the whole thing is framed as what people call a reversal of Babel. Um, It's where God is kind of reconstituting the world as it was designed to be. And the reason why I think that's interesting is because if you think about Babel, back in Genesis 11, humanity tried to build a world apart from God. They tried to build a king, kingdom without the king. They tried to rebuild the garden without the God. They tried to create their own paradise without the creator. And the Lord, in his wisdom and in his mercy and in his pursuit of his people, disrupted Babel. He broke it down. And what if that's what God is doing, not just in society, but what if the difficulties in your life are the Lord mercifully disrupting your attempt to build the kingdom without the king? Like, what if he's disrupting your babble? Because it's what he's done throughout all of history. Just think of the just world history. You think of whether it's the Egyptian empire, you think about the Persians, you think about the Babylonian empire, you think about Assyrian empire, you think about the, the empire of Greece and Alexander the Great, you think about the Roman empire, you think about the Byzantine empire, you think about the Ottoman empire, the British empire, and we think about America and we're like, everything's shaking, everything's shaking. It's because God just shakes up kingdoms when they think they can make a kingdom without him. Like, let them try, build your tower. Build your tower. Okay, you guys, build your tower. Maybe not so heartlessly. Like maybe it's my own cynicism. Maybe it's a lot more loving. Like come to me. Turn to me. Knocking over attempts to build a life without him. We are desperate for spiritual renewal. And there are echoes of that desperation in society and in culture. And there's echoes in your life. And there's stuff going on in your life. There's something that God is doing in this world. And we as a people need to interpret these kind of like brokenness, not as this threat against the church or this threat against your spiritual life, but as an opportunity to lean into and to prepare for what God might be wanting to do in your life, in our church, in our city, and maybe even across the world, which is what I want us to see in this 
Second piece is that we want to be a people that prepare for spiritual renewal. Um, spiritual renewal is not something you can manufacture. It's not something that you can be like, hey, if we do X, Y, Z, follow this formula, let's look at kind of like the Wesleyans and let's look at the Great Awakenings and let's look at Jonathan Edwards and let's look at these revival movements that have popped up in, in Africa and let's look at the revival movements that are popping up in South America and Asia and let's like just pay attention. Let's learn what they did. We'll do it. And then presto, spiritual renewal. Holy Spirit will be poured out. That's not, that's not how it works. It's a movement of God, totally by his power, totally by his grace. And yet there are ways to begin to prepare our own hearts for what God might be doing. And we see it here in this passage. Where the people of God, and you see it uh, in verse 12, they return to Jerusalem, to this mount called Olivet, and they go into this upper room, and they begin to get down on their knees and pray. And the prayers aren't like, Lord, give us a safe life. Help my kids get into a great college. Would you please open up an opportunity to buy that new house in the neighborhood we'd prefer to be in? Uh, Give us good sleep tonight. Those aren't necessarily wrong, but I don't think that's what they were praying. They were called to be waiting for God to move in power. God, pour out your spirit on us. We are waiting. This mission is daunting, but the world is broken. Our hearts are broken. We want your presence with us. We want your power in us. We we want your glory and your kingdom to spread through us. We want the world to know that, that there's life in Jesus and there's hope in Jesus and there's grace in Jesus and there's love in Jesus. We want our neighbors to know in Jerusalem. We want Judea to know. We want Samaria to know. We want the ends of the earth to know their king and their creator. We want them to find life and hope and love. Pour out your spirit. We are afraid. We are insecure. We can't do this. We need your comforting presence. We need your love. We need your power. Would you pour out grace? We we don't want to keep playing this game of trying to build a life apart from you. We want you and we want our life to be oriented around your presence and mobilized in this mission. We want you, Jesus. Would you work in power, Jesus? Come and fill us up with your power so we can proclaim your name and bear witness to your glory across the face of the earth. They were praying what Tim Keller calls frontline prayers, like people on a mission, not maintenance prayers of people protecting their American dream. They're praying frontline prayers. Move, move, move. Spirit, move through us as a people for your glory in this world. Um, Tim Keller, when he talks about frontline prayers, he talks about kind of three things that would, would shape or identify the nature of frontline prayers. One is frontline prayers are marked by a, a request, a, a, a prayer that God would give us grace to confess our sin. That a huge kind of inhibitor for experiencing the power of God is just like our gripping on to these sinful desires and practices that make us like, no thanks to you. I want some of you, Jesus, but if like having all of you means letting go of this life I'm trying to hold on to or these things I'm holding on to, I don't want that much of you. Just a little bit of you, so long as I can hold on to this, which is actually called idolatry. And so being honest about those things, those areas in our hearts, not just behaviors, but heart-level things that are just real, I mean, we can be honest because I want more of you, Jesus. I want more of your love, more of your grace, more of your life, more of your power. And so I'm just going to be honest. These are things that I've been wanting more. Would you purge me? Would you rip these things out of my life? I have this pathological bent to go back to them, and I need your power to liberate me, set me free, to hold on to you and to run to you and to crave you. Instead of this, this life that's already shaking, 
Please restabilize my life. He's the one destabilizing it. This prayer, it's a frontline prayer for confession. Second thing Keller says, which I just think is powerful, is he prays also that frontline prayers are marked by a compassion and a zeal for the flourishing of the church and the reaching of the lost. That we'd have a passion. God, would you, would you do powerful things in our community? Transform marriages and lives and, and change hearts that we would be a people that orient our whole lives around you, who you are, your love, your kindness, and reflect that love and share that love with our neighbors and our coworkers. Would you give us passion because I'm so apathetic and complacent and I, and I have these neighbors and they're just kind of annoying, you know, or whatever. That's what your heart is. Would you change my heart to give me a love for them and a passion for them? That we're praying that God would move. And the last thing we're praying for in these frontline prayers is we're praying that we would be a people who have a yearning to know God and to see his face to glimpse his glory, that we want to know you. We want to know you. We want to know your love, not just in our head, but in the depth of our heart. What might God do? Might not be like right now, I have all those desires, but what if you started praying? God, would you work? Would you help me loosen my grip on these things I've been holding so tight? Would you help me, like, want to be with you? Would you help me, like, create space in my life to hear your voice and to lean into my relationship with you? Would you help me? What might happen in your life, in your household, in your family, in your gospel community, if you, you, say, I'm done trying to build my life apart from the presence and the power of God. I want you, Jesus. And what we're praying for as a church is that there be a number uh, among this church that would say, like, I'm done and I'm ready to pray. I'm ready to be devoted to prayer. And I don't know how many that's going to be, and I don't know what that's going to look like, but we gather every Sunday morning. We really do. We gather on Sunday mornings from 8.15 to 9.30. We gather this morning, and there's about 15 folks, and this is what we were praying for. God, pour out your power. Pour out your presence. Pour out your spirit. We want to know you. We're praying for you. We're praying for your family. We're praying what God wants to do through you in your neighborhood and your workplace. What would it look like if if he were continuing to build that number, that we'd have more and more people gathered together to pray, begging God to move in power in our lives. And Charles Spurgeon would talk about boiler room prayer. And that's what we called our prayer time in the basement on Sundays, boiler room prayer. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in England who thousands of people that were affected through the ministry of their church. And when people are like, what's the secret to your ministry? And he was a phenomenal preacher, but he would never say anything about his preaching. He'd say, our people pray. And he was often known to take people down to the basement on a Sunday and show them hundreds of people crying out to God to move. And what God did in and through that ministry and through those people was astounding. And what would it look like for us to be a church that, like, this people, we pray. We are a people devoted to prayer because we want God to move in us and through us in this world. So let's take a moment and pray now that God will do exactly that. Um, Jesus, would you right now, um, would you right now in this moment pour out your spirit in fresh ways in people, like breathing life. Just think about you breathing on your disciples and your peace, just washing over them as your presence was imparted to them. Would you do that right now? Would you breathe 
peace um, over the hearts and the souls of your people right now. Would you still our hearts and would you would you begin right now cultivating hunger? And friend, I want to just ask you, if you feel in your heart God doing something, just even if there's some inkling of a desire to be like, I, I don't want to keep trying to build my life, expending all my energy to build my life without Jesus. I want to build my life with Jesus. I want to know him more. I want to draw near to him more. I want more time with him. I want to know his love and his presence. I need his power. Even just to turn from the things that I've been building my life on, I need his power. Just going to invite you even right now just to speak to him and say, Jesus, I want, I want to know you more. I want to develop deeper friendship with you. And I want to be done building my life apart from you. God, would you cultivate in us a holy discontent with a sort of endless pursuit of trying to build life apart from you? Would you cultivate in us a deep longing uh, for you? Would it reorient lives this morning, maybe people that tonight and tomorrow, I want to wake up and spend time with Jesus. I want to wake up and spend time with Jesus and, and I want to grow in my relationship, not because I get points or because I, I'm, I want to walk with you. And so would you cultivate in us those types of hearts that would lead to transformed lives, but would you also make us a church? Would you please do a work in our church that we'd be a people that are devoted to you, devoted to your kingdom, devoted to prayer, also devoted to this city and sharing your love to the end of the earth in Denver, Colorado. Would you pour out grace on us? We want to know you more. In Christ's name, amen.